0: Step inside my living room Share a little talk by roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you been and what you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the Heights In the hat, put it all in the
1: hat. Avram Rosenzweig began public speaking when he was five years old. Over the last five decades, Avram has mastered the art of public speaking. Today, Avram is a professional speechwriter and speech coach. He offers a wide selection of services that can assist you in preparing for public speaking events, speeches for family or professional occasions, a keynote, a memorial, or a simple toast. Avram can also coach you through articulation and presentation challenges. For all your speechwriting needs, send Avram an email at info at hatradio.ca. That's info at hatradio.ca. Hello and welcome
2: back to Hat Radio. My name is Avram Rosenzweig. This is episode 21 and I am here with my very dear friend David Raym. Re- Notice the huge applause here, Dave. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you put that effect in later, right? Is that the idea? Yes, yeah, so we'll plug it in a little bit later. Can it be a really large crowd when you do it? <laughs> huge,
2: huge. It's, it's like the ACC or Scotiabank, whatever it's called. You're yeah, richer right. than you think, right? <laughs> so my my dear friend David, he and I haven't seen each other for a while, and I'm going to tell you a little about a little bit about who he is. We met on the, uh, really on the set at Movable yep. Feast, right, Dave? Yep. You were the director? That's right, yeah. And over the years, your life has sort of evolved into uh, that of an artist. Yes. And I like to call you, I don't know if you're comfortable with this or not, but I like to call you Canada's Norman Rockwell. Are you comfortable with that?
3: Sure. You are? uh, Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want to call myself that because I would find that a little bit presumptuous but um sure if you want to call me that because because what there is is there's an element of storytelling to my art that's very very important very much so and and a humanity to it that would definitely be and i've had the comparison before to rockwell have you yes although um if are you familiar with edward hopper does that yes. name ring a bell yes. i get that one a lot too and Whom you and, like you like it oh yeah, yeah yeah very much yeah. and alex colville yes i get that one too so
2: most of this is because I read information about you. <laughs>
3: in, the, in the 15 minutes before.
2: <laughs> David, are you ever with people and they mention someone who is so like, oh, you've never heard um, of you. Oh, yeah, of course I know. Yeah, great artist.
3: <laughs> that's right. Right? <laughs> right?
4: You don't look exactly. like an idiot. Like,
3: you think I'm an ignoramus or <laughs> yeah, what? Of course I know yeah, that guy. And then you go home. You Doesn't look, everyone? You look it up, right? <laughs> exactly.
2: So uh, David is a self-taught artist. Uh, he's an award-winning artist. The Emily Carr uh, Legacy, the Arabella Award, which we'll talk about later. He's worked on television as a director, still does. And uh, his paintings have sold to private collectors in Canada, the U.S. and Europe. You've been in the McMichael, haven't
3: you? Yes. Uh, How, How was that in the McMichael? I love the McMichael. The uh, autumn art sale, you mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's one of my favorite shows to do. My only complaint about it is that it's it's very tight. You don't get a lot of wall space, but it's a fantastic group of artists, and the show organizers are they're all over it. They've thought about it from an artist standpoint, so um, they have all your tags ready to go. You don't have to do anything. You just walk in with your paintings, hang them up. They give you all the hardware. They give you little uh, barcode labels. They handle the transactions. Right. They even take it off the wall if it sells and walk it over to the sales counter and you literally don't have to do anything. How often do you feel special as an artist in environments like that? Oh boy. I mean, I, I try to get into shows where the caliber's very high. So you get this, sometimes you get the sense of, wow, I can't believe I'm in the midst of these people. So it's hard to say that you feel, um, special, but it sort of ties into everything I think is important about an artist, which is to brand yourself and to be different right. and to be standout, which I think is key to if you want to sell your art. And that's something that I I feel I've worked towards in my art, and that's something that becomes more obvious when you do some of these shows. So
2: you really have been passionate about art since you are a kid. Yes. Right? Yep. Um, and you uh, doodle some of mm-hmm. your hobbies today even include mm-hmm. – comic I guess characters from uh, comic books or that sort of thing right yeah so you've been doing this your entire life and your brother Ross is a very Mm well-known artist as well so this is in your blood really
3: yeah absolutely right and uh, other family members my brother Mark as well uh, he works at the CBC he was a comic book artist as a kid and we worked on comics together I mean it was our summer hobby would be really we might spend eight hours at the drawing table laboring over our comics of our superheroes and so on and that's very cool we would we would package them into an issue and sell it every month and yeah, it was a lot of fun I mean it was to the point where I thought at one time you know <clears throat> excuse me I might become uh, a commercial artist or comic book artist I definitely looked at that as a possible career yes, yes. but then ultimately for a bunch of reasons I steered towards television and film so
2: Right. And that's where we met. Exactly. So it's good you did steer that mm-hmm. way. You wouldn't have met me.
3: <laughs> this wouldn't be happening right <laughs> yeah, at
2: this yeah, moment. Exactly. Something else would be happening. <laughs> that's right. There'd that's be right. another guy across the table, and I don't like that guy. <laughs> so, Dave, so yep. let's talk a little bit about your background because I think mm-hmm. it's important to set the context here. Yep. Six six kids in your family growing up. Yes, that's right. Your father was a politician. I think yep. in nineteen sixty three he yep. was voted into the House of Commons. That's right. right. And he was one quarter Ojibwe.
3: He is a, he's a quarter Ojibwe, that's right. So right. he's Métis because there's the French element in Réaume. And uh, and what's really interesting is that Louis Réal was Métis and he sat in the House of Commons, I think it was probably around the 1870s. There wasn't another Métis to sit in the House of Commons until my dad did in wow. 1963. Wow. So uh, he's kind of got that claim to fame. Uh, he only served two years. And then um, in 65, he was uh, voted out, basically. And he was never hanged. No. <laughs> like Louis Riel. <laughs> he didn't lead a rebellion and <laughs> yeah, shoot people with rifles or anything. No, no, none yeah. of that. No. But but your
2: great-great-grandfather was friends with Louis Riel.
3: Uh, Banatine. Yeah, Banatine. Banatine. Yep, yeah. that's right. Yeah.
2: So you heard stories yeah. about that growing up.
3: For sure. And, um, and the whole Métis heritage thing was an interesting angle, uh, especially my grandmother, who I knew quite well. Um, you know, she was half and half and the family lived, uh, they couldn't live on the reserve and they also couldn't live in the white town. They were literally between the two, uh, regions. Mm. And so that's where my dad grew up. He was the only one in his family to get a university education. Was he? Yeah. They had, uh, eight kids, I believe. Isn't that something? So, yeah. Do,
2: do you feel that you belong somewhere in that light?
3: In, in terms of a culture, like a inter- Look, I'm a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Jew. Yep.
2: And I fit into really? the Jewish. <laughs> you didn't know that, did you? <laughs> I, I don't talk about it.
3: it. I wasn't expecting to learn things like this. Yeah, I don't <laughs> talk about
2: it. <laughs> I don't like to say anything. <laughs>
4: yeah, I hate being a Jew.
2: <laughs> no, but Dave, Dave, hmm. uh, things get passed on. So your father, he couldn't live on the reserve. They didn't allow Métis, Right. Right. And did they also get special uh, taxation uh, privileges
3: or no? So I don't know enough about it. This okay. is quite a while ago. This is the middle of nineteen thirties, so
2: like do you identify as being Metis yourself?
3: Um you know, to look at me, you'd I just I'm like a white guy, basically. That's right. what everyone would think. Yeah, I mean I I do mention it, but it's not as it's not A deep part of my everyday existence okay uh and i'm not sure how i feel about that i uh, sometimes i wish i and there's still time to embrace that a little more well
2: Well, i have to tell you something uh when we talked prior to the interview you told me specifically things about yourself how many children you have what they do yep and you did tell me you were metis and in the arabella article which was an award that you won you mentioned that you're metis yep so it must be in your consciousness
3: yeah it is for sure yeah um the person who's really embraced it is my niece, Amanda, who would actually be even less First Nation than I am. Um, and she's totally embraced it. And she's a Juno-nominated singer-songwriter. Um, and she won uh, her an, an award for uh, Aboriginal, or she was nominated for Aboriginal right. or First Nations record in that category in the Junos.
2: Yeah, I listen to her stuff she's quite auspicious' isn't very she? talented yeah so this is kind of what I garnered from all of my reading about you 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 come from an important family well, would you agree with that like very successful uh, a lot of
3: storytellers a yeah. lot of uh, yeah there's uh you know there were a lot of achievers in the family certainly in the the sort of storytelling media realm of things like uh, my sister has her own production company yeah. she toured with Alanis Morris that uh, my my brother Ross was a, before he was a painter was a rock star with a band called Roman Gray. Yes, and they had a song that went to number one in Italy. Which song was it? Uh, I was it Ibu? Can't remember which one it was. He had a few hits around that time, but one of them went to number one in Italy. Right, so, right. Uh, and my brother Mark is in radio broadcasting at CBC. So there's a whole. I made films and things. So. Yeah, there's a there's a entertainment element to our family that's there pretty prominent.
2: Is that hard to live up to, or is that just not an issue with you?
3: I, you know, growing up, our our childhood was so entertaining and interesting. Yeah. I don't think that uh, I don't I don't think we even considered it. Like that was normal.
2: That's what you to did to put
3: on plays and make movies and do. That was just you know I don't know. That's what we did, right?
2: So you had a blast as a kid. Oh yeah, yeah. in in Ottawa we're speaking in right? Ottawa. That's yeah. right. Were you yeah. actually born in Ottawa? Because yes. Know- Ross was born in Saskatoon, in Saskatchewan. In Yorkton.
3: Uh, I'm the only one of the family born uh, east of, let's say, Manitoba. Yeah. Uh, everyone else was born like way north or in Saskatchewan, or my sister was actually born in a Clavic, which is on the uh, Arctic Ocean. Really? Yeah, because that was the time when my dad was a social worker in the north, and they kept moving through all these little communities. Oh, wow. And she was born in a clavic, and it's, an, it's like the picture of the hospital is hilarious. It's this run-down shack, basically. <laughs> like all, you'd see in the stilts. Second World <laughs> War, right? Yeah, <laughs> Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, so yeah, they were all born way up there, and I was born in Ottawa. And I was born just after dad got elected. And uh so I don't really have the north in my past like the rest of them do. Yeah. Um, And they brought me up north in 65 when dad ran for re-election, but I was a toddler. I don't really remember. But all the rest of them have that in there built into their DNA. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's the family photos. They're in mucklucks and uh, and parkas and all that stuff. And yeah, and there's dog sleds around and it's really cool.
2: Yeah, it's kind of interesting when you take a look at the body (laughs) of your work. Mm -hmm. You've done a lot of stuff on Ottawa. You've done stuff on Paris. Yep. There's even a piece you've done on Helsinki. Yep. Right, And yep. I don't know if there's anything in the north. Is there?
3: Northern Canada? No, I not don't really. I think so. I mean, I've done things that are quintessentially Canadian, like a kid with his hockey stick and skates going to some outdoor rink with like the northern lights. Could be anywhere, really. Could be anywhere. Yeah. It's probably north, but it's not specific. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Now, you, your mom, um, Helen, was yep. a, a
2: travel agent. Yep. Right? It, yep. I, I always say that you get something out of your parents' career. Yes. I, and I've said many times my father was a rabbi, so he would bring home books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a friend whose father owned a sports store, and she would have the Adidas, the the Roms, and mm-hmm. the Pumas, all of the shoes that came out. So your mom was a travel agent. Did, did that mean you got to fly to Egypt for $50?
3: Not quite that far, but we did get special deals. Uh, she would do these things called fam trips, where they sort uh, short for familiarization. Right. And where they would send the agents to wherever to, you know, they do a bit of work at the local office, but then they also go out and tour the sites. And so she would get great deals uh, for the whole family. And my parents both love to travel. They've, they've been all over the world. And so sometimes we'd go along. So, uh, but it's tough with six children, right? Because it must be. <laughs>
2: did you guys ever do an RV trip
3: or something no, like that? We did. Oh, we did. We used to do the classic drive out to Prince Edward Island in the station wagon. All, did, all eight of us. Did someone throw up in the car? Oh, of course. Usually it was my sister, Jocelyn, the one <laughs> right. the one sister. Right. Uh, and we used to joke because we used to camp at campsites. Yeah. Yeah. So there was the, the barf bucket that was always in the car. It was like a metal pot without a handle. Well, we used to joke that later on that night, you'd see, the, you know, the baked beans simmering and it would be in the same pot, right? I can <laughs> My imagine. mom, of course, you know, claims that wasn't the case, but you know, we like to rib yeah. her on that one. Right, your mom so. go, yeah, stop
2: it, kids, stop it, right? <laughs> well, your parents are still with us?
3: My father is deceased. Uh, he died in 2013. My mom's still around. She's going to be 85 this year.
2: How, how is she?
3: Oh, she's great. Is she? Oh, yeah. She's, uh, she's going to outlive me for God's sake. You think Uh, so? Yeah, for sure. Uh, she's a little dynamo, you know, five foot three of a little tornado of energy and activity, right? So
2: what does she do with her time?
3: Well, she's looking after her, uh, my stepdad, who's, uh, not in a very good way. Mm -hmm. He's, uh, in advanced Parkinson's. So Mm, I'm sorry. He's in a home and she spends several hours with him every day. Yes. Um, so there's that. So she's out in Saskatoon actually again. So. Oh, is she? Yeah. Yeah. She moved back when she married Derek. It's a, it's a bit of a rambling story, but to, to make it really short, my, my grandmother, Nana Gessler, who yes. lived in Saskatoon her whole life, was yeah. constantly pestering my mom to move. You've got to move back to Saskatoon. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> you sound like Yoshmengi. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened is my mom always you know blew it off, blew it off. And then finally my, my grandmother died in 2000 and my mom went out for the funeral. And there just happened to be a high school reunion going on. My parents were split at this point and she met up with Derek who she knew from high school. Yeah. And they married and she moved back out there. So basically, about a year after my nana died, my mom moved back to Saskatoon uh, for good.
2: Do you go to visit her?
3: Uh, not as much as I'd like to. I've managed to work it into a few jobs I've done where I've been able to stay for a day and have a visit. So,
2: what's it like for you to go out to Saskatoon? Like, what are your feelings about the place?
3: I don't have a big connection to it, although I like the prairies, you know. I know people find the prairies aren't interesting, but I, I they're kind of cool. This big sky country, right? Yeah, right, right. The, the sky seems to go on forever, so.
2: Well, I mean, what's fascinating about you is one gets the sense that through your eyes, you look out at wherever you happen to be, whether it's raining or snowing, and mm-hmm. snow, snow is a big thing in your creativity. is huge, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, that wherever you go, it must be exciting for you.
3: Yeah, and I'm, I love Canada. And uh, and actually love the cold, which uh, you do, eh? sounds a little perverse probably to a lot of people. Well, you're a hockey player. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
2: What position do you play?
3: I'm ideally suited to play defense. Actually, you've reminded me I need to pop my – I have a pain pill here because I'm playing today. Well, pass one so over I, here. I, <laughs> it's just Advil, but I, I'm on a regime. Yeah, go ahead. Pop away.
2: Are, are you? Are you a good hockey player?
3: I play hockey as well as a fat old 55-year-old guy with – Knees destroyed by arthritis would be at hockey. Let's put it that way. I like the way we get self-deprecating
2: <laughs> at our age.
4: You know, yeah, I know, I do that I know, too. Because yeah, there's, I'm no, a fat there's guy. no illusions,
2: right? I <laughs> no, mean, there's the.
3: I can't use age as an excuse because most of the guys I play with are around my age, but we have a few thirty-year-olds in the mix. And lately, there's been some nineteen-year-old kids coming That's out, and good. it's just like pff, no, just nobody wants forget that.
2: Forget it, right? How's your peeing? <laughs> Mine's
3: like all over the place. What yeah. do you mean, like you like you missed the target? Yeah, or you mean yeah. You're like when you were a kid,
2: yeah, a prostate thing, you know.
3: Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. You it, good with that? Do you that you have or? to get up in the night to. Yeah, do I get up in the night. Do you? Uh, I try not to. I I'm usually can get through the night without. But but there's it goes through your mind, right? <laughs> <laughs> like you're lying there at three in the morning, and it's like, "I don't want to get I'm up. Right. I want to get nice and comfortable. But if I don't, can I ma- Can I get through to <laughs> through like six?
4: And then you
2: wake up and your bladder's bursting, right? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, 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 Dave, you yep. you got married a uh, second time. Yes, I met your wife. It was yep. really nice. You mm-hmm. came to one of my art shows. Yes, well, in fact, it's the only art show I've ever done. And yep. it was so nice to see you guys.
3: There. It was great, and we hadn't seen each other for probably ten years, maybe. Right, It'd been a long time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: And she's lovely, your yep. wife, just yep. lovely. Yep. So, how's the how's the second marriage?
3: Oh, it's fantastic. Is and, it? And you know. Right from the get-go. I mean, uh, she and I have hit it off uh, from the first time we spoke on the phone. Actually, we met online on the Plenty of Fish website. Did you? Yeah. And yeah. our first phone call was great. And then the first time we got together for coffee, we ended up spending two hours together. And uh, it's just it's just gone from there. She's fantastic. Is she? uh, oh, yeah. We are, you know, we're just so in sync with each other. Uh, there's so much respect. It just, uh, Siobhan's the best. So,
2: what, what What do you love about her?
3: Uh, soup. She's a super generous person. Uh, she's very loving. She's so selfless. Uh, it's always about everyone else first. Uh, she's just kind, and you know, uh, she's she's been a social worker. Her whole uh, her career has been in social work. She dabbled in some other things, but you know, and he, even she started in the area where they have to go do uh, apprehensions of kids, which is a really rough go, yeah. right? Like she'd have to go in with the cops and stuff, and yes, and all of that didn't make her a jaded, cynical, or hard person. She's as empathetic and and human and warm as, as ever, you know, and I just love that about her. And I have a quick story about her too, because when we first met was uh, we'd seen each other for maybe about three or four months. And I saw this thing online. It was an opportunity to go to Scotland for an artist residency. Yes. With the Glen, Glenfiddich uh, Brewery. Mm -hmm. And I would be gone for three or four months. And we were at that phase where you sort of want to spend every moment together kind of thing. And so I brought it up to Siobhan saying, and I was concerned, well, you know, it's a long time to be gone. And, you know, and her her instant reaction as soon as she heard about it was, oh my God, you have to apply for that. That's cool. So it was so much about me and what I was going to do. And uh, you know anyone who's going to shower attention on me is just awkward. <laughs> yes, anyone I know that. Appeals my vanity. Yes. <laughs> is just,
2: you know that about me. <laughs> That's what we used to say about you behind your back. Dave's so freaking needy, man. Marty would go, I know, I know. That's Dave. Eh? Here comes Ray Om. <laughs> So, Dave, that yeah. that begs the second mm. question: is is are you? Uh, do you feel like you're deserving of, of that sort of love?
3: Oh wow, that's a good one. No? That is a loaded one. I mean, I think that all people who are of good character and are respectful and 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 give love are deserving of love. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, are, are
2: you good at giving love?
3: <sighs> <laughs>
2: well, why are you laughing?
3: <laughs> you knew what show you're coming on. <laughs> it's not
2: CBC in the morning, you know.
3: I'm probably a four out of ten at giving love.
2: Well, look, if she's that type of woman, she's got to be nuts about you, right? I would say so.
3: She looked like she was. Yeah. Well, it's early in our marriage. There's still lots of time. There's
4: time. (laughs) (laughs) So,
3: but here's how I look at it, okay?
2: I have intimacy issues. So, uh, you know, I've had relationships. Uh, My longest relationship was seven years. But uh, my shelf life is somewhere around three
3: years, four years tops. In any relationship, you mean?
2: yeah yeah like i'm getting bored of you
3: already <laughs> yeah well ditto it's good we're, we're gonna get some good uh, youtube moments here shortly <laughs> we are we are we are.
2: so so i don't have a long shelf life and and i just uh get it's kind of frightened when i get too close to a woman over time so i can't stick in. i can't stay in there i'm friends with all my exes and they will say all they'll all say that mm-hmm. i wish i was different but unfortunately so far i'm not your your first marriage lasted how long?
3: Twenty six so years. Th- that's a success, isn't it? Sure, and yeah. and the three kids produced by that union—that's a success. Are testimony to that too. Yeah, absolutely.
2: So you can stay in a relationship for a lengthy period of yeah. time. You don't get scared yeah. and run. No, no. Well, there you go.
3: No, I I took my wedding vows very seriously. Yeah. You know, uh, even even though I I was twenty two when I got married the first time around. Were you? Yeah. But I took it very seriously. I wasn't going to abandon ship. Yeah as soon as there was any trouble and uh you know and the kids were adults by the time we broke up so uh you know we just uh we just went our separate ways and that's that's that I mean I don't you know we're still friends oh yeah so that's that's good I'm glad about that yeah that's very good it was a tough process that's a that's a really hard process for anyone who hasn't gone through it uh it's not easy yeah
2: yeah we should probably stay away from that
3: right Okay, now. let's do that. Yeah. Okay.
2: <laughs> so how about the Jays? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Give me one of your painkillers, yeah. you know? Yeah, right. No, no, what, what, what I find interesting about you too is you're both in the box and outside of it. And why I say outside of it is because you're an artist. I mean, that says everything about being outside of the box. It's very hard to be an art- artist in Canada. Right. But then on top of that, you have three beautiful kids, yep. all of whom, thank God, are doing well. Yep. In life, one mm-hmm. is on CBC. One works for Bell Rogers one, or Bell? one.
3: Uh, okay. So the, the oldest is Ross. Ross. He was a, a segment producer at TSN. Yeah. He's now gone off and made a documentary about, uh, have you heard of the butterfly child? If you haven't, this, no, no. this will change your life. What is it, David? His name is John. His name was, he died about a year ago. Uh, Jonathan Pitra. He was a young boy from Ottawa who has this horrendous skin condition where basically his skin will come off at the slightest touch. And he had to be, he had to bathe every other day and be wrapped up like a a mummy basically to even exist in the world. And he was in chronic, horrible, I mean, 11 out of 10 kind of pain, but he was such a plucky kid and the Ottawa senators kind of took him under their wing. Yes, I saw. So they sent Ross out to do a a piece on him and he and Jonathan, he just loved this kid. So he he, he traced, he tracked them for three years through all his treatments and. He left TSN and went to cover Jonathan's story, uh, in documentary style. So he has this incredible footage of that whole journey.
2: Uh, and how, and what's the documentary called?
3: There's no working title yet. He's in the editing phase, okay. but he has a okay. mountain of of footage to review and yes. it, it's very difficult I think for him because I think for 3 years and then with Jonathan ultimately passing away. Yes. It's very hard on Ross. It's there's a bit of PTSD going on with that I think because it was so uh he was so emotionally invested in the whole thing and Jonathan was just a fantastic kid. i had liken him to uh Terry Fox. I think he's this the next generation's Terry Fox. Is he? Cuz his courage in the face of his odds you know, he was such a fighter and had such a great spirit. And our problems are tiny compared to this boy's daily routine, right? Yeah. And so anytime now, like I think I'm going in for some painful procedure or something, I just, I think of Jonathan. It's like I have no right to complain whatsoever. What, uh, we'll just let the <laughs> siren pass. What
2: were you like when you saw this little guy and his skin was so bad? Because that stuff freaks me out. What do what you like with that?
3: I'm pretty tough about sort of medical or. I'm you not are screamish. tough. Yeah. yeah. So
2: like when your your kids were little, this is really no comparison. Then they would vomit on
3: you. You'd be cool. <sighs> It's nothing to Nothing. It. Okay. No, I would I would opt for it. You know, when you open the diaper, you have a boy. You, you open a the diaper and suddenly there's a <laughs> family. Well, I just put my hand out to deflect that because it's like I can wash my hand, right? But I, I don't want to hose down the whole uh, nursery. So <laughs> <laughs> I would just stick the hand in and just deflect it into the diaper and just you, wait. And
2: you yeah. should run yeah. these father programs. You should be like in charge of those. <laughs> People would come. Your second child? Tell us about your second Allison.
3: child. Allison. Allison. So- She's now working at uh, Bell Media. Yeah. She's a junior television executive, but she's training to be a TV executive, basically. So she's a, she's a coordinator right now for all kinds of shows that uh, CTV runs, big ones like The Amazing Race Canada and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. The thing that your audience may or may not know about her was uh, back in 1996, she was the star of a spoof version of Alanis Morissette's Ironic I saw it, and uh, yeah, so it's a mini. She's like a mini Alanis, and we shot it shot for shot, and she has the same uh, cornrows and everything, and yeah. she lip syncs the whole thing. And yeah. Allison was quite the performer at that age. So, anyway, we my sister was touring with Alanis at that time because my sister actually taught Alanis in high school, so she was on Alanis's tour, and we thought, ah, let's just do this video for fun. We'll we'll send it off to Jocelyn. She'll get a laugh. Maybe Alanis will see it. She'll get a laugh. Yeah. And Alanis did see it, and she loved it and insisted we put it on the air. So signed a little rights paper, and off it went. It was on uh, Much Music. It was on MTV, and then it was picked up by Star Alliance, I think it was. And went you Rolling Rolling Stone picked up? And then Rolling Stone and Entertainment Weekly did an article in their magazine. So mm-hmm. I got a call from this guy from New York. I was at work and... So-and-so from Entertainment Weekly is on the phone for you from the York. So we did an over-the-phone interview. Isn't that wild? But, you know, it's like any of these things. It was sort of viral before things went viral. Yeah, yeah. And there's still people who remember it. And, but, you know, for a month it was crazy. And she was made a presenter at the Much Music Awards and all this stuff. And she was recognized on the street and in shopping malls. And But like any of these things, the the public goes nuts for like a couple of weeks. Yeah. And then they're on to something else. Right. right. So, you know, there was some concern about, oh, is this too much attention for a little six-year-old girl and so on. But we knew it would blow over ultimately. And uh, we, we sort of never really let it get into her head or much beyond that.
2: And the thing about your family, they seem very vivacious. Your family mm-hmm. seems very gutsy. Yeah. Like watching your little girl in that video, she was right there.
3: Oh, my God, I mean, yeah. She wasn't shy oh, yeah. at all. No, I know. Right? I know. Yeah. And we were worried when we brought her to the Much Music Awards because it was a pandemonium at that place. And she had to go up and present in front of live cameras and so on. And they have a wrangler that follows you around so you don't get lost in the crowd. Right, so right. when Allison's turn was coming up, you know, the wrangler comes up, says, okay, Allison's got to go now. And off Allison goes, happy as a clam, like standing up there all bold in the much music window and just, you know. <laughs> That's neat. Yeah, yeah. That's it neat. was great. It was great to see. Your youngest child? Alan. Yeah, we could do a whole show yeah. on Alan. yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's a lunatic. You met him. He was on your show. Yes, he was. Yeah, uh, he's he's crazy, 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 and funny and brilliant. And he's just finished eight years of post secondary. He's just become a medical doctor, and he's got his residency to be a brain surgeon yeah, at the University nuts. of Alberta. Yeah, your son is a brain surgeon. Yeah. Well, well we knew he's either going to save the world or destroy the world. We weren't sure. So he can do a bit of both. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, beautiful. Maybe he will. Perfect. Maybe like Doctor Evil or well, something. what's he like? Oh first of all, he's hilariously funny. Yeah. Originally funny. And I'm not just saying that because it's my kid. Like anyone who ever met him would just be entertained by his antics. Like he spent about two months b- being Batman basically. And he was in character. Well, what, whole do you mean? Time. what do you mean? <laughs> he was wearing a Batman costume. He was about four. <laughs> really? Yeah. So he would, and the full oh, deal, like the black rubber mask and the whole suit in the middle of summer. So he'd be just dying of sweat, but he'd stayed with it. And, I remember one morning I could hear him getting up out of bed. And this, this had been going for quite a while. And I was wondering to myself, I wonder if Al is still doing that Batman thing. Yeah. And literally the door opens and he's snapping the the final <laughs> glove is being snapped into place, right? It was like 7 in the morning. <laughs> he would introduce himself as Bruce Wayne or sometimes Dick Grayson who's the Robin alter ego. What a cool kid. And he would stay in character like he he was a cat for a couple months. Brandy the cat. So he would run around, and he fell once. He's also really tough. Yeah, he fell on a gravel road when he's running, and he stayed in cat character when he came up to me. Like he had all the chunks of gravel in his knees and all his blood. Really, and he comes up to me going meow, 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 and pointing. Like he stayed with the cat thing even when he was suffering. Were you worried about him? <laughs> he was so entertaining. Oh my god! He made god. you laugh. Oh my god! We loved as a little dude. He was so charismatic and uh, but busy and he slept he he did not sleep he didn't about the same as us he'd go to bed at 11 30 at night get up at 6 30 in the morning and he didn't nap from the time he was 18 months old isn't that something his, his brain i see it now when i look back at old footage it's that mind is racing he can't turn it off right so yeah it, it was very exhausting, grueling as parents was to parent him, but it, he was, was so entertaining
2: like how were you as a dad his dad
3: oh pretty patient i mean we loved al i mean his antics were so funny yeah boy he was a handful he was (laughs) yeah Yeah. and now you should see him he's like blue-eyed blonde uh he's got the chiseled abs like a great looking guy oh yeah yeah he could be a model i mean again i'm not that's other people tell me this i'm not trying to sound like one of those parents yeah yeah and uh you know he comes in with his doctor stethoscope and stuff just like he's a killer he's like dr kildare
2: we often talk about uh, children,
3: people becoming
2: doctors, yeah. and there's a certain fame, fame in all of that. It's a very auspicious thing to evolve yeah. into. What about being the parent of yeah. a doctor, in particular, a future or a brain surgeon? It, yeah. Like, do you hang out with doctor parents, or when you're with just your no. regular friends, is like, oh, my son's a doctor.
3: You know, it's it- it's a great gag every now and then Is when that, you can mention it. And then what's yeah. your son doing? Oh, he's a brain surgeon, you know, because it's like a rocket scientist <laughs> and they go, or a no, brain seriously, surgeon. Dave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you know, I, I don't. As long as he's happy, yeah. honestly. Yeah. Uh, I don't I don't have any aspirations for any of my kids beyond just they find their calling in life. And Al's told me this. He said, I've found my calling, which makes me feel great because I, honest to God, I didn't know where all that was going to channel, you know, he could easily be one of these guys who bounces between a million things because he, he could master stuff very fast. I imagine. And so he'd be bored, you know, within a few months. He he got his black belt in Taekwondo because he loves moving up levels. <clears throat> so he stayed with that, got his black belt, and then he never did it again.
2: That's interesting. Eh? Yeah. I've seen kids I, like yeah, that. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. yeah I so. find that fascinating. Right. Yeah. In other words, I've done this. Uh, I got out of it what I wanted to get out. And now it's time to move
3: on. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Fresh challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure as hell not like that. (laughs) You're not. You just (laughs) stay
2: with what you're doing. You don't move. I know. I'm like that too. That's our generation though. I see it in our generation. Yeah. I'm 59. You're what, 55? 55. 55. yeah. Yeah. We weren't really taught to progress in an aggressive way. We were not. Our parents, they stuck in the same job for many, many, many years. Yeah.
3: Whereas now, it's not like that at all. Yeah. Now you have to uh, be more fluid and change. You have to be. Because in our, in our generation, people could get a job and they know they'd be there for, you know, uh, 35, 40 years. Right. You know, I'll start at the on the floor of GM and I'll work my way up. And, yeah. You know, yeah. Eventually, I'll be the, the, the floor manager and blah, blah, and, you know, get the gold watch. And it's just not like that anymore. No, it's not. And these massive companies that are shutting down and are gone forever like think of things like blockbuster i know i mean that was a giant and that wasn't that long ago no and it's all gone it's gone so for kids like i honestly i'd hate to be starting over again yeah i i wouldn't want to be a 20 year old again starting out i just it's all so up in the air now you know it's challenging yeah eh? i know i yeah. see that let's yeah. uh
2: let's dive into your career <clears throat> okay because um i adore your art Oh, thank you. I do. I just absolutely adore your art. And I've told you this for as long as I can remember because I looked at it and you regularly accomplish, if not always, what you set out to accomplish. And that basically is what I believe is to paint a moment in life, a slice in Mm -hmm. life in the article that was written about you, which was written very, very well, by the way, um, I think she says at some point, and his breath was hanging in the air. Right. And I read that phrase, and I thought, that's exactly what one sees in your art. It's a, You you qualify it as it being a, a slide or a frame yes. in a movie, which has a frame on each side of it, but you capture that essence, that moment and you paint it, and you go through a whole process. Yep. Was that just organic? Did, did, did your technique evolve just from your spirit, from your soul? Was there thought behind that? How did that work?
3: I think there's a lot of crossover between the filmmaking side of me and now the art side, and it, it's actually kind of come full circle because I started out drawing, doing the comics, yeah, and then I eventually morphed into filmmaking with some friends of mine when I was a teenager which led to a career. And now I've sort of come back around to drawing again. So, uh, but they're very similar disciplines. And I think a lot of that cinematic element, you were earlier asking me if I could define what sort of genre I was. It's a cinematic style, I'd say more than anything. Cinematic art. Almost. Yeah. It's like a movie, like still from a movie. Yes. In some ways. Uh, I get that a lot from people too. Oh, it reminds me of, you know, uh, Road to Perdition or something where right. it's in the 30s and there's snow and all that sort of stuff.
2: Right. So Right. So there is a lot of that.
3: There's a lot of that. What's interesting is I could, like drawing comics. Uh, at one point, I got a book on how to be a comic artist by a guy named, I think it was Rich Buckler. He was a Marvel artist. And he made the point in that book that comics and movies are basically the same medium, exact same. If you do one you're also really doing the other and he, oh. and he broke it down and he said you know you have reaction shots, you have establishing shots like it'll be outside a building, you'll have worms eye view where the camera is like right down on the sidewalk and things are looming over you. All the cinematic things are present in a comic. And when you think of it when they're storyboarding a complicated movie scene, they do a storyboard that's basically a comic. That's correct. Yes. So he said if you're working in one you're really working in the same they're the same medium. So I found that really interesting. And definitely there's some crossover into the artwork from there, as well as sense of lighting, which is the one thing people always talk to me about my art. it's like, oh, the lighting, the lighting. And I had the privilege of working with some of the best uh, cinematographers in the country during my career and light. I just, just by osmosis, I'm not a lighting director, I'm the director, director, but I learned so much just being on set about, you know, how to position lights and what ambient light does and what fill and key light and all that rim lighting, all that stuff.
2: Who did you work with?
3: Um, a couple of guys, George Morita and Stan Mastell are the two that jump out of mind. They were um, partners in Avian Film Company. It was a big, they, they would shoot like huge Canadian commercials. These are ones you'd recognize uh, that cost, you know, half a million dollars 20 years ago. Right. Right. These guys were like the best in the business, basically. And the stuff they shot, it just it was incredible. Oh.
2: Isn't it great working wonderful. with Giants?
3: Yeah. I know. Yeah. I mean, they're brilliant men and and lovely guys too. So, uh yeah. So, and just, and a lot of talented people, you know, I had the good fortune of being with lots of talented art directors and other people who I just learned through osmosis, all these things. And I'd already been interested in that anyway. Like when I was a teen, I used to study filmmaking. I used to read film books yeah. and, you know, all that. So, yeah. uh Yeah.
2: Well working working with you as a director on the Movable Feast which is the show that Marty and I did for 3 years it was very quirky. Uh, oh, it yeah. was it was a pleasure. <laughs> it was a pleasure. It was so much fun. It was a lot of yeah. fun. Yeah. But uh, you kept Marty and I online, I remember.
3: Yeah, but I wasn't I don't feel, well maybe you have a different <laughs> take No, on you it. weren't overwhelmingly tutorial or anything. You
2: were not. You were not. You were pleasant. Marty and I needed to have someone who understood what we were trying to do. Right. Because it wasn't right. that clear. No. No. Like, we're both no. very ADHD. We're very out there. Yeah. But you got it. You got it immediately.
3: Well, I could see, like, I was brought in after a couple of episodes, and I could see, because you guys had a radio background at that point, right? right? But I, I don't, you hadn't done really any television. I have that not. Nature.
2: No, but Marty did, but I didn't. No. And you
3: wanted to have skits and all these things in the show, and uh, I could tell you were sort of chafing under the restrictions of, you know, conventional TV making, so... I just saw you know, I, I liked you guys right away and I just thought, you know what, I just, all I need to do is just let these guys do what right. they want to do and try and create a bit of a a box around them where I'll look after all the technical things if they just, and they can present their ideas to me and I'll try as best I can to make it work, which wasn't easy. <laughs> no, I know it wasn't, David.
2: I'm sorry. I apologize. You <laughs> don't need to apologize. That's why I'm doing the show. <laughs>
3: And then I was always like the third man in when you needed an extra right. guy. Do you remember that? Yeah. That's right. You would put on the policeman's hat, and I tackled you when yeah, you, you were running you tackled away with the me, That's right. When I had the turkey leg. Right. Right. My favorite was I think you were a matador. Was that the Mexican yeah, episode? I, I was a matador. Yes, I was. And it was decided for some God. The show. I mean, Freud could do a thing on this. <laughs> like I was a bull. But I was courting Marty, who was a senorita. I mean, just weird. <laughs> Those were the days. <laughs> and the costume. Remember our costume supplier, Vicky? <laughs> yes, Vicky, yes. So I, we said, we want a bull costume because Abram's a matador and he needs to fight a bull to right. win Marty's <laughs> <So> <laughs> right, right, right. She gave me what was essentially a cow's costume. It was like <laughs> Elsie's the cow's face. And a black onesie that had udders on it. <laughs> and <laughs> I was like, all right. But, the, but she gave me black gloves. And I thought, okay, I. I need to have hooves if I'm going to be a bull, right? Yeah, you should have hooves. Right. So yes. I got disposable paper cups, and you? I wrapped them with black electrical tape, and this I put those brilliance. over my hands. This
2: is your brilliance.
3: And then you and I, we went out to a park, and I remember we had a fight, and I couldn't see a damn thing. <laughs> and with the hands being helpless and, like, basically blind, it was just
2: These <laughs> <laughs> Those are crazy days. <laughs> I haven't chaos. thought about that in years. Um, but it was yeah. fun. It was a lot of fun, oh, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
3: it was a lot of fun. Yeah. But the other thing that, you know, what happens is in television world – This was the other thing that was uh, particularly when we did the recipes, this became tough for you guys to manage was that you have a vibe where it's like this show where you like to speak for a long time. You get to know the person like it's it's unhurried. Right. And we would have these recipe segments in the middle of the show that were six minutes long. And there's all sorts of things that have to be delivered in that six minutes. You got to introduce your chef. You got to discuss what the thing is. He prepares it. You see the finished product. Yeah. So it's all these things that basically can only be a, like a minute long. And sometimes we would roll, you know, 45, 50 minutes in those segments to finally like get it all down just to business. To and then we had to we would have to go and edit that down to six. And you, you're just, you're gutting it, right? You're cutting out 90% of it. And, and some then,
2: really good stuff. Oh, yeah.
3: Oh, yeah, yeah. But the problem is because the recipe is advancing, you get these enormous continuity errors. So let me give you a little example Yeah, one of these me. would go down because yeah. I kept trying to convey to you guys, look, guys, we got to get closer to the six minutes in our raw time. It makes it easier for editing. So like the chef would, let's say you're browning some beef for some tacos or something, right? Right. So chef starts out, you got raw beef and you start, okay, now mm-hmm. we're going to brown the beef, puts it in the pan, starts browning. Then Marty would launch into a story about like a party he was at. <laughs> And this story might take three minutes long. Well, okay. it just, I can't run that story no matter what, right? Cause right. it's just going to kill the segment. So Marty's going on and on. Meanwhile, the beef's progressing. It's suddenly gone from pink to it's getting brown. It's getting brown. Yeah. And then you'd be on the side and you'd be bored, right? At all this. <laughs> and so, and Visible, you're, <laughs> was I visibly bored? Was I visibly bored? Well, you love, you admitted it too. You said you love to stir the pot, right? Right, right. So you would go over and get like the flour bin. And, and and while the stuffs and Marty's talking and the beef is browning, you would dump some flour on the chef's head. So, yes, I remember that. So all of a sudden, <laughs> chef's covered in flour. So, but what happens is, in TV land, you got to edit all that out. I have to I have to cut Marty's story out. But if I do that, suddenly the beef goes from pink to brown, and the chef inexplicably has white flour all over, all over him. So then I need to show the moment where Avon dumps the flower on him. But Marty's in the middle of the story, and I can't get in there and have some little... So it... <laughs> Precarious. This was the type of stuff I faced. In the wow! Other world.
2: Wow! So. You really earned your stripes on that show, didn't you? I didn't realize. It's so
3: funny because I, I used to think you know I'd get through those edits and I go well, that's not too bad it's not that choppy and then I'd see <laughs> right. years later and I say oh that's just a mess Jesus God, look at it's that that's just, just brutal it's incoherent <laughs> <laughs> I'm really sorry Dave
2: I apologize Oh you don't
3: need to apologize no, I don't But think that's so. the thing you guys were it's a it's an unhappy marriage of those sort of mediums yeah. where it's free form and you can talk forever. And television is very stringent, you know. you got to hit marks. Things have to be lit. Like, you don't have that same free form. You That's know? very true. So That's um, why
2: I love radio, by the way.
3: Yeah, I, I get that.
2: I adore yeah. radio. Do you like radio?
3: I do, yeah. Yeah, it's actually great when I'm painting, just to tie it all in together. Uh, podcasts are great when I'm painting. Uh,
2: you know, while you're speaking, by <laughs> the way, because you're very articulate. Oh, thanks. I, I think so. I, I, I was thinking you could probably do a great podcast. Yeah? Yes. Yeah, I'd I'd love to. Sure. I, I think you do a terrific yeah. podcast yeah. cuz you you're a storyteller by nature, right? Yes. Which is what you need.
3: Yeah,
4: in exactly. this medium. Yes, exactly.
3: Right, right. Yeah, you got to be able to spin a yarn. i credit my father for that. You do. Yeah.
2: I know you do. Yeah. I know you do. <laughs> by the way, we never finished talking about your no. mom. So just tell me one thing, was it, it, there seemed to be a, a lot of vivaciousness in your family. Yeah. W- was
3: your mother vivacious? <laughs> my mother was like a, a character? Was she a character? Not so much character, no. I mean, she's, uh, you know, my mom is incredibly plucky, uh, determined, always chipper. You know, the, the, if you get lemons, you make lemonades. Person. Right, right. Uh, my father, who we haven't talked much about, <laughs> again, you could do a whole show on him. He was an incredibly, uh, he was a lunatic. He was? He was a drunk and a rascal and a womanizer and, and, funny as all hell. And, and this was uh, all good. smart. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, there were lots of negatives too. Where there? I mean, well, he went from being an MP who was, he was on a first name basis with uh, all the top guys of that era. I mean, he was personal friends with Chrétien he knew, the original Trudeau, Pierre, and all those, Mulroney, yeah. Clark. Knew all those guys yeah. on a first-name basis. Did, they bring, did he bring them home to your house for dinner? Uh, I don't remember them se, but here you know. He was <laughs> he <was>, here. <laughs> <laughs> my dad was really big friends with Lincoln Alexander. Was he, was he? like a hero in Hamilton. Oh, yeah. He used to bring Link by the house all the time. That's a great man. Oh, Link was amazing. Great man. We loved him. Yeah. He was so great. Um, but then my dad ultimately was – homeless by the time he was in his 70s what living in his car out in bc yeah he, he was yeah he literally allowed his life to crumble away um he was eventually diagnosed as bipolar yeah which uh, we always presumed growing up that he drank a lot i mean the guy lived to be 81 it's was, it was pretty phenomenal well, what was his choice of uh fl- drink what wasn't oh <laughs> well, everything right right <laughs> yeah. what what isn't on the list would probably be quicker Uh, yeah, he'd drink scotch or whatever, right? He'd start going in the morning with the mug that's supposed to look like coffee. And, uh, but we used to think that it was a Jekyll and Hyde scenario where the, the alcohol turned him into a a lunatic. Yeah. But it's actually, it turns out he was bipolar and always was and was undiagnosed. You love your dad? Oh, sure. You did love him. Oh yeah. He was an original. That guy was quite
4: the character. he? He was
3: a difficult man to be with. Because he was uh, he wasn't a mean drunk, but he was obnoxious. What was he? Oh, like what? Big, you know. It's he was Mister Magnanimous when he was on. It was one of his his uh, bipolar benders. He and knew he, everything, and he would just drink a ton, and and everything was was big. And he would launch all these projects and get us all involved and in stuff. And he never wanted to do the grunt work. He always was looking for cronies. <laughs> right. He always try and dream up things for my friends and I to make films about, and he was just. He was just a pain in the ass, right? And he was very irresponsible. He was. Spent all his money just, oh, yeah, reckless.
2: So who bought your clothes, sent you to- Mom
3: Mom basically held the family together. And when did she kids. divorce him? At what point? It was until we were all adults. It was 1991. She held on. She held on. They were 37 years, I think, together. Wow. Wow. And, he, and to put up with that wild man. But really, only my mom could have put up with somebody like that to the point that she did. Because she's a very independent, strong person who- you know, didn't necessarily need that. You know, she was very tough. Like she went up to the North with him and followed him on all those adventures and, you know, never griped about that life. Yeah, yeah. You know, they had no running water at times up there with the five kids and, you know, and a challenging life. Oh, yeah. Absolutely.
4: Yeah.
2: Yeah. So,
3: so, so just tell me in a nutshell, what are your feelings about your father looking back? Oh my god, he was an original. Uh, I I miss the guy. I mean, you, you I, do miss him. Toward the end, we all we all kind of reconciled. There was a long period when I didn't even talk to him, yeah, because uh, he was just so gone. Uh, but we all came around. I credit my sister Jocelyn for most of that. She she kept the lifeline alive the whole time. But his 80th birthday, we all flew out there to surprise him, and uh, he didn't know we were coming. And we we came into the house one after another in five minute intervals. That's so nice. So just more people kept showing up. That's lovely. And, uh, and he was the funniest guy in the room. Still was he? had his oh my god, he was hilarious. Was he nuts about you guys? Was he crazy about you? Uh, I, I I can't even really say. Like I your know dad loved you. Bizarre. Did
2: your dad love you?
3: He was such an untypical dad. Yeah. You know, like he you just so not that dad he didn't teach you to throw a baseball or any of that like he come to your hockey games no no he was just this figure that would pop into our lives inject a bit of insanity lots of humor but a lot of drinking and partying and craziness and then off he'd go again okay we might not see him for four weeks yeah he'd come back and you know so he is so unconventional i I can't even get a fix on emotionally what he felt He, he definitely loved his kids but he was uh, sort of an existentialist and kind of a. He had such a bizarre take on kids. He loved to corrupt kids, and I'm not. I'm not meaning in a really bad way, but he loved to be that guy who would <laughs> shatter the childhood illusions about Like life. like what? Like what? Well, I'm gonna have to swear to tell the story. That's but, a podcast. Okay, one of his famous expressions was uh, "Faint heart never fucked the pig." Which is, you know, when you look at it, if you analyze that statement, it's actually, that's technically, yeah, that's true. If you have a faint heart, you're probably not likely <laughs> <laughs> to fuck a pig. But as, as we found out years later, uh, that was actually a Shakespearean quote. It's, what was it? Faint heart never won fair hand or something. But this was my father. Like he would distort sayings like that, but he wouldn't then let us in on the joke. We might just find that out years later on our own. So it was, it was good enough for him to. Say these things and have these expressions. So he would, you know, if it, women he didn't think were attractive, he'd say, you know, oh, she's no day at the
2: beach. And uh, he'd have a cigarette right.
3: and he'd fire his cigarette down.
2: Yeah. A lot of the old guys talk like that. Oh, yeah. And you say to them, don't, don't say that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. I know. Don't talk like yeah, that. It's not nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: And he's totally of that era. Right. And all his drinking cronies are of that era.
2: You know. But Dave, here's the kicker he was your dad. Yep. That was your dad.
3: Mm-hmm. That was our dad. You only had one dad. Mm hmm. We never really compared him to other dads, or I, I whereas don't know. you could have, we could have. But you know the the one advantage I had, I had the four boys that were older than me, and my brother Gene was de facto dad in terms of he would beat up the bullies or he would, would teach he? us how to throw a football or you know like he was he was that guy you could look to if you needed that uh, older. He was eight and a half years older than me, so so he took care of you. He, he, but he wasn't always there He was off doing his own thing, but right. he would come in every now and then and establish order. And the, the, the next two in line, Ross and Steve were the real shit disturbers. Were they like oh, what? Ah, yeah. uh, just, they were constantly fighting each other or, or using us to practice wrestling holds on <laughs> and, you know. It's like
2: I'm choking, like Ovi. Yeah. I will in a bit. I remember
3: once my mom rolled up my shirt sleeve, and my 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 yeah. upper arm was just black and blue because they've been practicing their uh, punches on my arm, right? And you know, I was, you never told your mom these things,
2: no, right? No, no, of course not. Of course not. I
3: remember once I was at school,
2: and someone well, it was firecracker day, or there, you know, around then, and and I said, oh, that firecracker couldn't hit hurt me. This guy that I knew, a friend of mine, he throws it at me, and it went down my shirt and blew up. Oh. And I came home with, like, just my whole chest was mangled. My mother said, what happened? I said, well, I fell on my neck.
4: <laughs> you didn't I tell mean, them why that.
2: Would we, I guess you didn't want to rat the other guy out, right? You were afraid your parents would get angry
3: with you, too, right? Yeah, What were somehow. you doing there? Yeah. I
2: told you not to be with those boys, yeah. right? Yeah. Right.
3: I mean, I I just I look back, and I'm glad I'm still here. because You're of this, still alive. Some of the shit we did. It's, like, it's crazy stuff, right?
2: <laughs> I know. Dave, we should probably talk about your art.
3: Yes, we probably
2: should. I'm, I'm enjoying the hell out of this, <laughs> by the way. We'll have to do like a part two we We'll have a trilogy <laughs> or something. I, don't be know.
3: I can be the Ed McMahon to your Johnny Carson. You're great,
2: man. <laughs> you're great. A wonderful storyteller. But in all of this, all of the stuff yep. that you talked about, your brothers, your father, your mother, and so on, you seem happy. Sure. Like you're happy about your background, your history, Yeah. Right? Yeah. Even well, though some of
3: it was nuts. Well, what are you going to do? It's yours. It happened, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I had some physical hardships as a kid. My I'd born with terrible knees that I had to be operated on as a teen. how old were
2: you when you were? Uh,
3: I, like I couldn't really run by the time I was about eight years old because my cartilage was so defective in my knees, and it didn't stop me from playing football and getting them further mangled. And uh, so that so physically, I was a bit of a wreck until my teen years, and then I started pumping weights and really got into that. And that became a bit of a wall. I was very painfully shy. Yes. So that physique became this thing I would go out into the world with, and you know, I was a, I was a tough guy. I was strong, but I was still painfully shy. And so I'm uh, a better person now than I was back then.
2: So let's sure. let's take a look at your art. Yep. Um, I'm gonna name some of the pictures. Absolutely. You, you titled sure. uh, the night mm-hmm. bus. Yep. And and what I want the listener to do is to close their close your eyes, and just imagine what. This description of a painting or this title of a painting might look like to you okay and if you're thinking of it in sort of almost like mystical terms looking back on your childhood yes i remember those days then you're probably getting dave's art uh you did a piece on the pentages yep express downtown is one of your art pieces into the elements now here's a good one the dairy man Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so tell us about the Dairy Man. Explain to sure. us what it looks like and why you painted it.
3: Well, I actually found it, it was an archival picture that was up in a condo somewhere, and I, I got a snap of it. I think it was just the cart. It wasn't the man. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I always like to do is put a human somewhere in the painting because I think it draws the viewer in. Uh, I don't like to feature the human, though. No, you don't. So I won't put, like, someone's face right yeah. up close. In no, fact, usually like are walking show- into... They're walking into the scene.
4: From yes, the you'll beyond. show their back.
3: Yeah. yeah. Because <clears throat> I think that's a way to draw the viewer in. You're sort of going in with that person, but you're not staring at that person. It's more about the scene. So the Dairyman, I found this shot of a wagon, kind of a sort of dawnish on kind of a muddy street. looks like it's from the 1920s. So I did a, like a pinky glowing sky and the horse is waiting and there's a Dairyman carrying bottles up to a house. And yeah. it, he's the only guy in the scene. Uh, and that's the pink sky is reflected down in all the puddles and troughs that are in the dirt and it's kind of Aprilish like there's no leaves on the trees or right because what I like to do in a painting is to have people to be able to identify what kind of day is it so if it's uh, oh yeah, that's like an April morning it's like two degrees. I know what that feels like or like a winter night where it's minus five and there's a gentle snow coming down so, I, I try hard to really, really, it's not just, you know, oh, I'm going to put snow in the painting. I try to think about the kind of day it is when I paint it.
2: Yeah, and you do that uh, so well, I must tell no, you. Oh, well, thanks. I uh, was reading up on the development of your art piece, mm-hmm. and it's somewhere in there. What you do is you work on the background first, and you bring it forward to the right. foreground. Yep. And you described your background, I think, as having a more layers. Yeah, layered, Yeah, and then the foreground you described as being misty. Mist- is that the right word, misty? Well, the background
3: gets mistier. The background more, gets the, mistier, right. It gets right. mistier and mistier, yeah.
2: So it's almost
3: like you're looking
2: at realism, but you're not.
3: Right. Right? Because what you would sort of want to do with a painting is you don't want to paint uh, the same level of detail everywhere all over the painting, because that what happens is your eye likes to focus on things. So if you've got someone walking into the scene, you don't want them looking equal time at all the little windows in the background. Yeah. Actually, it's interesting. It's some of my favorite parts of my paintings are the parts way, way in the back. They're very non-figurative. Like I actually don't like painting really super figurative stuff. Right. But I find I tend to bog down into it as I go. So I try to keep background simple and I'll paint them full up to start with, but with each layer I'll put a wash over it. What happens in real life, if you're looking at a building that's in a distance and it's a foggy or misty day, it's called aerial perspective. The amount of particle between you and that object makes it get fainter and fainter. Right, right. So I do that in a painting. So I'll paint the buildings in the background, then I'll put a wash on. Then I'll paint the mid layer and I'll put a wash on that. And Then the background's getting two layers of wash. So it gradually drops away. So you can still sort of see it, but it's really, really faint.
2: Right. When you look into a distance, it almost gets filmy. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You, you did a piece which was called uh, Delivering Ice. Yep. Yeah, so tell us about that piece.
3: Arguably my best piece, or people have told me this, I painted it quite a while ago. It's a scene of a guy in Parkdale delivering blocks of ice on a, on a sleigh in the middle of the night. And uh, I I'm just the cold, right? Like that's my thing about it is, I mean, how bloody cold was it to be manhandling these huge chunks of ice in mm-hmm. like February at night, right? So it's a very still, quiet scene and the two horses are just doing their thing and the guy is at the back, back to the camera again and there's a light on that's shining down through the block of ice and snow coming down. But uh, And I draw horses a lot even though I'm not necessarily a horse guy. This is what happens to you when you paint archival pictures. You end up painting horses, telegraph wires, old cars, spokes on wheels, ads on... Like all this stuff that you don't really necessarily want to paint.
2: You don't want to paint it? But
3: but if you don't, I mean, they're just part of the scene, right? Yes. So like trolley cables overhead and all that stuff, lots of that. So
2: So you grew up in uh, Ottawa, yep. and I'm thinking, I know Ottawa. It's a freezing cold city oh, yeah. in the wintertime. Yeah. I remember I went to visit a friend of mine there. I took my puppy, Max. And uh, I think at three o'clock in the morning, I had to walk him. You know how puppies are, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. and, and I remember him like getting buried in the snow because the snow was was up to my chest. Oh, yeah. I think. Yeah. Very different than Toronto. Yeah. So one can't help but think. Yeah. There's so much snow in your art because there must yeah. have been a ton of snow in your childhood. Tons.
3: I mean, I, I when I think of childhood, I automatically think of snow. You do. Yeah. Totally, I feel like my childhood was spent in the snow. <laughs> Do you? Even though know, you know, probably half of it probably was, but yeah, because there were mountains. It's like you say. I mean, the ca- there were canyons of snow. Yes, you know your yes. your walkways. They were. I mean, I was small, so I'm sure they weren't as large as I remember. Right. It was like a mountain range running down the road, and you couldn't see if you're in a car. You couldn't see around the corners and things, and and just and being out at night. Like being an 11-year-old kid out tobogganing with my buddies at night and it was freezing cold. And, right. You know, yeah. Right. Yeah.
2: And you would come back after hours and hours. Like your mom would say, come back at dinner. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And it was the weekend. You'd come back. You couldn't
3: feel your toes. No. Right. And you'd have this cuff of ice. You know the the, uh, yeah. the cuff you have on your jacket? That would all ice up. And you'd literally have like an ice handcuffs on, yeah. your, on your wrists. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I know. It was good for a kid, though. Yeah, It was good for for kids.
2: Yeah. The Iceman's an interesting piece, by the way, because my mother used to tell me about the Iceman. Is that right? Yes, she would. And he would deliver ice to their house. Yeah. Um, They knew him. They knew his name. Yeah. Do do you ever attach names to your characters?
3: No, I haven't done that. I don't know. I don't tend to think. I, I think I look at them as a bit of an everyman. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's sort of deliberate that I don't. And I don't really paint. I, I'm not a fan of painting humans. I don't know, it sounds weird. No, you're I not. I just said I include them, but I, I try to sort of dash them off and keep them kind of flowing and sort of wiggly and not not as well realized as everything else. Correct. And yeah. your brother
2: Ross is yes. also a very well-known uh-huh. artist. Yeah. His characters, I think, are uh, a bit more um, developed. Yeah,
3: would you would you agree with that? His style is more uh, old world, like old masters. You know, yeah, they like are. the Dutch masters. Yeah, it's, that, it's that oil rit- as well. I paint in acrylics. Why do you paint in acrylics? Uh, convenience. It started as convenience, and now I've I've gotten to a point where I've, I've sort of mastered all the techniques in acrylics so well that I I've tried oils a few times, but I can't find the vibe yet on it. Uh, I can pull off more or less. I got to a point after about five years of painting where I could pull off. Pretty much any effect I wanted to pull off. Oh, and, wow. and I could do that in acrylics. So I just haven't really ventured beyond it. It's dry in 15 minutes, right? So it suits my patience level. Like if I right. blow something, right. I can be at it again in 20 minutes. How many pieces have you painted? I've, I've lost count. Several hundred. I've sold more than a 100. Uh, yeah, I, I don't even know anymore.
2: And your pieces go what? Up to like $1,500, $2,000? Yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah, and down like in the 400s for smaller bits that's all, see, it all ties into the business of art too, right? And like pricing strategy and all this. And these are things I mull over all the time. Mm-hmm. Like uh, we haven't talked much about the business of art, but it's a tough racket and it's it's hard to find uh, the formula to be selling all the time. And you sort of think you're onto something and then you're not. And then you, you have a bunch of sales and then you go four months without a sale. Mm-hmm. And it's like, ah. So there's this constant self doubt going on and constant reassessing of what you're doing and
2: I have this book I can't remember the name of it but on the front of it is a picture of a uh, shark which was in an aquarium of sorts and it was a real shark and it sold for millions of dollars a picture of the shark it's not I'm sorry it's it's it's, it's actual it's actually a real shark yeah and the artist placed it inside of an aquarium sort of an aquarium type of thing and gave a name to it and it became very yeah. It's a
3: formaldehyde shark. One it? of those. The yeah. problem
2: with the art was eventually, you know, yeah. the, the shark started to mold and bacteria set in, and oh, right. they had to replace the shark. But they sold it for millions of dollars. Ah, I just, I know. So the name, the, the the book is all about the marketing of art. Yeah. And one of the theories was, and I think this is probably a very cogent theory, is that uh, it really depends on who owns the piece of art. Yeah. So Rockefeller owned that. Uh, There were, again, a particular piece of art. It's the one with the stripes across it, uh, Bilo, Bigo, I forget his name. Yeah, yeah. And it sold for millions of dollars. And once Rockefeller owned it, it sold for millions and millions of dollars more. So I guess part of selling art nowadays is whose hands you get it into. I know.
3: And I I have a lot to say about the whole installation art and modern art thing. I think it's ruined art to a degree. I mean, I'm... I'm a bit of a traditionalist. I I don't, like I like some, I like some strange art. I love Edvard Munch and, you know, that stuff. Yes. Uh, And I like the cubists and those sorts of things. But I think it's this whole sort of uh, stunt art, I'll call it, you know, like this whole Banksy thing where they destroyed the painting. It's like, come on now, really? It's, It's about a gimmick. It's not, you know. It doesn't have to be uh, Renaissance uh, uh, realistic in my mind, but honest to God, that that element of it has become—it supersedes everything else. I agree, with you. and I, I find it tedious. And and to your point, like who owned the piece or who even created the piece? Like Paris Hilton, if she started drawing, would be selling her pieces for you know fifty times what I could sell them for. That's true, and it's a sad—it's sort of a sad thing in a way, you know. So.
2: It really is. Yeah, I don't like. I, I want to introduce you to a designer because she could probably find people who your art would match their
3: couch. Right. 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 And I find that sad. I tend to not sell to that type. I think for a certain reason because a lot of art uh, that I see now is at uh, these shows is sort of decor art. It's decor art. That's it's like right. A, it's like a splash of color because it goes with the vase I bought, and you know, it, which is fine. And the one thing I don't ever do is I don't ever criticize other artists. If they're selling, if you're creating and you're selling, more power to you. I mean, I'm not. I I don't think other people's art is bad or whatever. I'm not like that at all. But I'm just not interested in doing that. I I, th- I feel like I have a story to tell. So,
2: so when you walked in here before and you went into my art room and you said, oh, from this is shit," you didn't mean it.
3: All crap. <laughs> <laughs> burn it. <laughs> yeah, burn it down. <laughs> so <he's, yeah. laughs>
2: here's here's what you said about art. I thought this was very poignant um it's to reintroduce viewers into scenes parents grew up in and will never exist again uh Mm -hmm. you've heard remarks like i remember being out on a winter night like that one uh you said that if art doesn't move a person uh or if they don't get it then the artist hasn't done their job
3: yeah i I believe that um quick story i had a bit of an online debate with this guy he was a like a prof out in California teaching art. He credentials up the yin-yang. Yeah. I mean, he's an incredibly accomplished guy. And I, I'd i never saw any of his, what I would call real art, but he was on about these pieces he had done where he'd taken dirt and smeared it on a piece of paper. <laughs> okay, yeah. And it's like, okay, I looked at it and it's like, this is, this is shit. This is dirt on a paper. It's dirt on a paper. And I think your art needs to be something better than... Like if a if a guy's cleaning up a construction yard and your art doesn't give him pause for a sec, if he just like sweeps it all into the bin, then you really haven't created anything special. So anyway, a guy defending his art said, Well, the dirt is actually from Hurricane Sandy. It was disturbed in the New Jersey shore when the hurricane hit, and I scooped up buckets of it. And and he said, And once I tell people that when I'm at these shows and I tell them, then they're fascinated. And I just think, but they but you've failed. Because if I make a film, I don't stand at the front of the theater and describe what's happening in the movie. If people aren't getting it, Mm -hmm, then I've mm -hmm, failed. mm -hmm. It's a communication, right? They should walk it. A hundred years from now, someone should go that and dude doesn't need to stand beside it and explain it. They should just get it. So that's why I say it's a communication. I think you need to – it has to evoke something in the viewer. That's to me, is the best art connects, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. You said, I hope my art – Uh, last many, 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 many generations or years after I do, right? Right. And and now I understand what you meant by that. In other words, you want people to be walking through the McMichael in 100 years from now and say, oh, yeah, I get that
3: piece. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
2: Yeah. I have to tell you something, and I told you this before. This morning I was uh, looking at your art in preparation for the show. In
3: your 15 minutes of cramming? (laughs) Yeah,
4: yeah, It was about 10. (laughs) (laughs)
2: I didn't give you 15 minutes, David. <laughs> um, and I, uh, I, I, my tears welled up with tear, my eyes welled up with tears when I looked at them, and I thought I wanted to tell you this, and I wanted to tell you this on the air that essentially you, um, you were successful at you what you set out to do. I looked at, uh, in particular, I think it must have been a scene that in Ottawa from your growing up years. And I just wanted to go back to my past. I I was brought up in Kitchener, Ontario. Okay. And it was very, very cold there as well. And I distinctly remember going out with my four sisters and my dear friends. And we would be playing all day uh, at Victoria Park or wherever it happened to be. And, you know, even though there's shit that went on in those days, we all know that, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah, there's just the memories that they Uh, evoke are really beautiful. Yeah. Really beautiful because we were a kid, right?
3: I think that's a big part of it, right? Like yeah, I, I think so too. I, I sort of pine for the early 1970s when I was a yeah. little nine-year-old dude and I was playing hockey, house league hockey. I was a goalie and, you know, the family would all be there at dinner time. It just, yeah. you know, it's like you'll never have that again, right? No. And uh, I, I guess that's what connects with people. but. You know the adults in your life are probably all struggling and have all kinds of problems know, that you're oblivious true. to. Well, your dad was <laughs> you out drinking. I mean, you my know. mom was trying to pay yeah. the mortgage or pay the rent and hold the house together. You're right, so. exactly. But some, <laughs> <laughs> but somewhere, it's true. I know, I know. It's like the Brady Bunch, but just with uh, Carol, not right, <laughs> not right, Mike in the picture. The real Brady Bunch. <laughs> That's
2: right. Yeah. But 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 somewhere in there, we felt safe, right? Yep. We did. And you had your brothers and your sisters. Yeah. I had my four sisters, my mom, my dad we had a, the community because my father was a rabbi. So there were a mm-hmm. lot of people in our house. And I had great friends. Did you have great friends as well? Even oh, though yeah. you had such a Absolutely. big family. Absolutely. And your brothers knew your friends and you well, knew your friends. Well, bro- yeah. Your, you know, brother's we, friends. And we
3: were Catholic. So <laughs> yeah. all the families we knew and went to school with were massive. Like at, at six kids, we weren't unusual. You guys were a small family. Were- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But we were, you know, people, we were large, but not not insane. Like the average family had about four kids. Right. And the people who had like two kids, you felt sorry for. Yeah, something happened there. One sibling, what's wrong? Yeah, (laughs) right, exactly. Not a happy family. There were families of seven kids, and and what we found is they were all kind of close together. Like we're only eight and a half years apart, the six of us. So there's like really only about a year gap between everybody. Yeah. And a lot of other families were like that, and they were they sort of mirrored yours. So there would always be a kid your age. And kids everywhere oh my god where we grew up yeah right just just the neighborhood just alive with kids
2: <laughs> well, what I love about uh, what I love about you David is is that you reminisce and you look back and you' very your memories mean a lot to you right yeah. it's like yeah. you, you have the scrapbook in your mind yeah yeah um, but they seem to have gone that way throughout your life and I'll give you an example okay. you, you you painted this lovely lovely picture of a dog. Oh, yes. Lying. Molly, oh. yeah. So tell us about the Molly picture. What's the background on that?
3: Well, Molly was, you know, she was a black lab, beautiful dog. You know, everything a lab is, sucky and loving and, you know. They lick uh, you to death. They lick you to death and, and wise and calm and just beautiful. Anyway, she uh, she died back in 2008. Uh, she, had a, she had a brain tumor, having seizures, blah, blah. I won't go on about those details. But anyway, she died. It's actually, in some ways, the perfect death. She died on the kitchen floor, uh, on a Sunday morning. We were all at home. The sun was pumping in through the window, and uh, it was such an ideal thing. And so, I didn't uh, didn't do much about it artistically for a few months. And then finally, I did this painting called "Came the Morning," where it's it's not even our house per se, and it's not even Molly per se, but it's a black dog sleeping on the carpet of a you know fairly opulent house with the sun blasting in through the window. So I yeah. A little bit of a tribute. I don't tend to get that personal with my paintings. You don't? Not not usually. Because There's an element of memory in there, but not as directly personal as that. Uh, right.
2: It, it seems, too, that I, I, you actually mentioned this, that you'll pull a memory from your childhood, and then you'll kind of attach it with this image that you might have seen in a magazine, Right. Mm-hmm. So there's reality there having yeah. to do with your own life, and yeah. then there's co- there's just the background.
3: Yeah, right. I paint a lot from archival pictures, from and arch- I think, right? And so I search those all the time. So I'm constantly on the internet looking at you know 1930s New York winter, uh, and I think what happens is some of those resonate with me. So maybe that's a memory thing where a certain picture will hit me just because it it prompts something in me. And then I'll might like, turn it into a painting.
2: There's one picture when I looked at your body of work, and one can find your stuff. You're, you're actually all over the internet. You've done a hell yeah. of a job. I have to I'm tell you,
3: very social media. You've active, done a great job. Which is, oh, thank you. You really have. It's it's a relentless. Uh, yeah, you have to be on that all the time.
2: No, I realize that. Yeah, I realize that. Yeah. I, I have my social media stuff uh, too, but you're on uh, Pinterest.ca. Yeah. You web your mm. your website is is DaveRayom.com. Uh, yep. Yeah. Facebook, Dave Reome Artist. You're on Twitter. Yep. Uh by the way, I love this. You described yourself on Twitter oh. painter, director, cranky old man, and the voice of a Scotch drinking, smoking
3: squirrel. Yes, that's right. Well, where, where did that come from? I love that. And then you have a picture of a squirrel. <laughs> yeah. Smoking a cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> sort of a like Christopher yeah. Hitchens embodied in a squirrel. Is that how uh, you uh,
2: hear yourself? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Without okay. the British accent. And but. you like Scotch?
3: <laughs> I like I like beer. You're a beer guy. Actually, I think they mentioned that in Arabella, right? That you like that, beer. My, you told me my two passions yes. were what? There's your a few hockey, other passions,
2: hockey, Well, you love your kids. Sure. I mean, right, but you love beer more, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, it said you love hockey. If my
3: kids bring me a beer, then then, then they're okay, good. They're I'll good show kids. some love. Yeah. Right. right, that's
2: a good measurement. I like that very
4: much.
3: Yeah, uh, but that was uh, just some vignettes I did with another uh, TV producer. We were just hacking around and we did these animated squirrels talking about uh, current events, basically. Oh. So I was Dave Squirrel and I, Dave I was squirrel. the the, uh, <laughs> the curmudgeon on the panel. Yeah, so, yeah. you know.
2: You don't mind self-deprecation. Oh, not at all. Publicly. No,
3: no. I don't either. No, I just, I look at myself. I, I'm i not vain anymore at all. I was pretty damn vain. Back when I, in those bodybuilder days, I was when vain as all hell. Yeah. If people didn't know I was all jacked, I'd be, you know. Now I could care less, you know.
2: Were you one of those guys walking <laughs> down the street without a shirt on? Yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. yeah. you see In those a tight T-shirt
3: every day, <laughs> exactly. You know, yeah. Minus forty out, right? right. <laughs> but actually, you know, you know, sort of cured me a little bit of that was my sister because at one point I I was entertaining all sorts of things. I used to play football. I'd say, oh, could I? make it, go football of course i couldn't uh but comic art film what do i want to do and i thought bodybuilding that'd be great to be like a paid bodybuilder
2: schwarzenegger yeah, yeah exactly
3: right and my sister said you know do you really want to do that she said think about all the skills and talents and creativity you have like think of all the people in your life who you like or any of them those muscle-headed guys yeah yeah and i just thought you know that's really interesting yeah and and no none of them are your, your sister
2: I, seems like an amazing oh, person. Oh, my sister is incredible. You have yeah. great respect for her.
3: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. She is the son my dad never had. Is she? Even though he had five. Yeah. Yeah. Five well, why do you say he, that? He said that. That's my dad's phrase. What did he mean by that? She's so much like him. Uh, she's got all the good aspects of him. Of your dad. Yeah. She didn't have the demons he had, but she's female and none of the boys are like my dad.
2: They're not? <laughs> not at all. She's the most like yeah. my dad. So what does she, she do?
3: She, oh, she's had an incredible career. She was a teacher, taught Alanis Morissette. Alanis liked her so much she brought her on the road. So she became a rock and roll uh, tour manager and press manager for Lilith Fair. Had this career in rock and roll for like nine years. Met met uh, like the most famous people on earth. Do you know who? Oh, all, all of them. Like, uh, you know, Kiss and Annie Lennox and, you know, my sister toured with um, Chrissy Hine of the Pretenders. Wow. I mean, just all, all these people, right? And then after that, she moved into video production. She got a successful production company. So, yeah.
4: Yeah. And do all uh, the
3: brothers respect her the way you do? Uh, sure. Yeah. I think so. I mean, you know, she didn't always get along with all the brothers when we were kids because my sister won't take anything lying down. Oh, She's tough as hell. <laughs> Is she? So, and some of my brothers would be really brutal. We were all kind of brutal to her. It was that era too, right? Where picking on people wasn't. You know, people got bullied. People picked on. It just yeah. was part yeah. of life, right? Yes, yes. So we were all kind of merciless. The five boys on her. Did you apologize to her officially years later? Yeah. No, you could on the show. I like,
2: <laughs> you know. Sorry, Josh. Yeah, we're, I'm we sorry, were such too. Shit. She knows that. <laughs> she knows. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, so David, I, I asked some of our listeners to send me a poem if they'd like. Yep. I'm trying to mix things up on the show yeah, a little absolutely. bit. And I got a really nice piece here from uh, Lori Raisin and it's called Once Adored. Can I read it to you? Sure. Yeah. Paint me a picture all the children can see, clear air and tame sunshine like it once was for me. Paint me a future against this new world where the wildlife's unthreatened and trees are treated like pearls. For the voice of a generation so wanting to be to please has been shuffled under possessions and delayed by wartime's disease. If time is the canvas and love is the brush words are the colors too long deemed unrushed for lessons can't be forgotten yet the children you ignore will never see or hear of the world my heart once adored
3: what do you think wow, of that beautiful that's a nice piece isn't it it's a it's a thing about memory right and uh passing on things yeah to the next generation i think that all ties in with exactly what we're talking about here with the art and creating imagery that'll last and,
2: yeah, I, I so appreciated this piece. And yeah, I, I beautiful. Was, I was also really grateful that she sent it to me. Like, this is a hard gig to get off the ground, this podcast. Yeah. I'm sure it was like mm-hmm. that's what you experienced with your art early sure. on, right? Yeah. It's, it's just tough. Yeah. You have to invest and invest and invest. All this stuff's hard. Or aren't you constantly thinking to yourself, what the hell am I doing, right? Oh, yeah. Even yeah. though you love it.
3: Yeah, it's rough. I mean, because you're balancing your your comfort and quality of life versus, you know, what's my legacy going to be? And that's you're always weighing that, right? It's right. like I could... Go get a job and make more money and be more secure and and end all this. and and, But then what would I be leaving behind for the future? Exactly. Like when you look at a piece of art from 300 years ago, do you know or care what that guy's daily circumstance was or whether he had a crust of bread to eat or like, do you even know?
2: Well, we seem to care an awful lot about Van Gogh. Yeah. bit of an anomaly that way.
3: Yeah. Yeah. But the rest of those guys, do you know if they were affluent or not? Cezanne and you, you know, know bits about these guys.
2: The Impressionists especially yeah, it wasn't that right. long ago, really. Yeah, but yeah. I understand your point. Yeah,
3: yeah. You don't know hundred percent. I mean, man, hey, That's a guy who struggled, you know, yeah. the whole time. Yeah, and uh, but carried on, and and I'm glad he did. You know, oh, his art's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely yeah. beautiful. Yeah,
2: they say when you look very closely at his art, it looks like a mess. But when you stand back from it, you see the beauty in yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um. You you recently, very recently, came out with a kid's book. Tom Barker, your buddy, yep. wrote the story, mm-hmm. and you did the artwork in it. It's called Lady Macbeth Afraid
3: of the Stairs. Right. Right. So congratulations. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It was quite an exercise. Was this on your bucket list, doing a kid's book? No. Actually, it wasn't. Uh, Tom approached me out of the blue. He says, I've written a book. I'd love for you to illustrate it. Tom and I go back 50 years because I'd befriend, He was the new kid in class in grade one. Yeah. And the teacher asked for a volunteer to show him around. And I, on an impulse, I put my hand up and uh, the rest is history. <laughs> that's nice. That's a nice story. <laughs> so anyway, I, you know, over the years I've lost track of Tom and vice versa. But uh, yeah, he came around, he says, I have this children's book. I'd love for you to illustrate it. Tom's quite an artist himself, actually. Is he? He could have illustrated it too. But what I liked about this exercise was, and just a brief bit on the story itself, he, he has a Newfoundland dog that's uh, a, a behemoth of an animal. It's like a bear. Basically. Oh, I love, I love those I just, dogs. Yeah, I just, they're gorgeous. Yeah, but a monster, right? Like they're monsters. Huge. Yeah. And um, this dog is terrified of basically everything. Like he goes on a walk and, uh, you know, it, it'll be afraid of a tin can or a, <laughs> or a gnat. <laughs> exactly. But its big phobia is with whatever is down in the basement. And, and the dog would stand at the top of the stairs and whine and shuffle her feet. And Tom couldn't figure out what it was about the basement. So he wrote the whole story of speculating on what is the dog terrified that's down there. So he gave it to me to illustrate. And it's a great exercise because it's different, right? Because I, it it gets boring to sort of paint paintings and try and sell them all the time. I was looking for something fresh. And this ties into my whole uh, filmmaking days because it's essentially taking the written word and turning it into a, a visual uh, reality to match the wording so it was a great exercise how long
2: did it take you to do
3: i did 17 panels and i'm trying to think of how long each would have taken some of them are simple they're all probably in the 20 hour area to do 15 to 20 hours so what's that we're talking just a few probably a few weeks or
2: months how do you deliver those pictures in what form
3: I just sent him JPEGs. So I, I just painted them on boards because they don't need to be mounted or whatever. And I could just let them bleed off the board. Right. And, uh, and so I just took a high-quality uh, picture of them, take that into Photoshop, tune up all the colors, and off they go and send him the files. And then he had a publishing company that put it all together and typeset it and all that. And he has a whole series planned. But, you know... We're moving this one not as fast as we would have liked. So if, if it takes off, we would do more. Lady Macbeth uh, goes to the city. Lady Macbeth finds a dinosaur bone. Oh, very it's gonna cool. It's going to be a whole series. So Very cool. Yeah. And where can people buy them? They can get them on Amazon, actually. They can. Just go on. Just type in the title, Lady Macbeth Afraid of the Stairs. It'll come up. and Everything's print on demand now, right? Like I don't stock them because right. people just order it and it gets mailed to their door. So. Yeah.
2: It's interesting doing a project like this as well, because there's a start and finish to it. Yeah, That's a good point. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that we do. It just goes on and on and on. Yeah. (laughs) Someone was telling me the other day, when it comes to raising
3: kids, you never really cross the finish line. You know, you never spike the ball. No. (laughs) And someone just gave me recently a great quote that I love. She said, you're only ever as happy as your saddest kids. Yes. Yes. It's like, wow, that's so true. It's very, very true, isn't it? Yes. I know. Yes. You never fully let go. No. No. no
2: so doing this, something like this you start you finish you go you can yep. hold it in your hand yep and you can say wow here's a piece that i've created and i
3: like that about painting too i don't i i don't like to revisit i'll i always say i'll fix it on the next one if i do a painting and it didn't really turn out the way i wanted it's like meh i'm not gonna belabor it i'm moving on
2: well what's beautiful about your attitude is you're prepared to ruin an art piece yeah. Right? Yeah. Explain that. Explain what that means. Ruin it? You you said you said that in the old days you were very stiff when you first started. Yes. You were very stiff. Your yeah. hand didn't flow. <clears throat> yep. Nowadays you'll take risks. You'll let things yeah. happen. You'll let yeah. you let your body, your soul, your hand yep. move over the canvas. And if you ruin it,
3: that's okay, right? You're no further off. You're no further behind. You know, if you stop painting because you're worried about where it's going, then yeah, it's not being done anyway. Yeah. There is only, in terms of ruining, there's one thing that is terrifying to me is when, back to the archival thing, when I've painted these elaborate buildings and horses and snow and all and then I've got to drop, like, one telephone wire across the foreground. It's like, I've got one shot at this. I know. know. Or I'm repainting everything that's behind it if I blow it. Has that happened to you? Have you blown the picture? Oh, I'm so meticulous when I get to that. It's kind of terrifying. I even try not to breathe too hard when I'm Uh, doing it, right? It's uh, like, yeah.
2: And if someone walks in the room and hits your elbow or something, you know, you know, what freaks me out when I'm painting and I lose the picture. I just lose it.
3: What do you mean by that?
2: In other, in other words, I've just spent too much time on it.
3: There's, oh, a, there's, yes. a, there's
2: a saying there's no end to art, but I think there is. Yes.
3: <laughs> what happens is you get beyond that initial spark that inspired you and then it becomes, it's laborious. Right. And then it's like, that's why I prefer, I like trying to keep it simpler, brushier, yes. faster. I'm always happy with my faster paint. It's weird. And the other thing I start out with, I start with a blank canvas and I paint what I call my coloring book. So I map it out in just a black paint. It's like a, it's like a drawing yeah. sketch. And then I go in and start filling color. And oftentimes I'm regretful of, it's like, you know, I think I like the sketch better. It had a... Spontaneity yeah. that the final didn't have, you know. I've seen that. Yes. So yeah. But what about your process in terms of creating? Because you do you want to get out and sell and all that too? Does that cross flash through your mind? Yeah,
2: I have this thing, and I'm not sure. Maybe you can tell me. I uh, I want my art more than I want to sell it. We, you and I have had this discussion, and uh, the idea that an art piece that I painted, and I love most of my stuff. Not that it's phenomenal, but I love it. I, uh, it's like letting go of a child for me, and I don't want it to be in someone else's house. I want it in my own house. I love it. I I go into this room behind you here, my art room, and sometimes I'll sit there for hours, just hours, eh? and just look at my art.
3: I have a few pieces like that, but over the years I've, I've, I've outlearned that I'm happy to see them go because Because? I am, because they're serving their purpose when they go. It's like raising a kid, it's like they go out into the world. And they're doing their job out there. You know, even right?
2: though you had the alcoholic father, you're just a lot, a lot healthier
3: than I am. <laughs> my father should have drank, <laughs> eh? <laughs> I use my dad as an argument against physical fitness and moderation. It's like, look at that goddamn guy. He was, <laughs> yeah.
4: you know? he was a member of parliament.
3: Come on, <laughs> his dad was the same. They both lived to be eighty-one. They both died of the same yeah, thing. They, which they is did like, fine. Right? Oh my god, they're fine. <laughs>
2: so, David, uh, we have a few more minutes, yeah. and I always like to finish the show. Um, by just asking almost like random questions sure but really cutting to the chase of who you are as a person okay. okay so are you uh are you happy
3: with your life have you done a good job yes because i've always i'm a, I'm a bit of a fatalist i i've i can always envision the end coming <laughs>
4: yeah <laughs> yeah
3: so i've always tried to live my life so that i really don't have regrets like if i kick off tomorrow i want to be able to say you know what Good, good enough. You did a, did a good thing. You took a good shot. Uh, I've seen a lot of suffering in this world. I've traveled to some really miserable places. Like where? Been in Africa, uh, even, even down in South America. I've just seen poverty at its absolute worst. And, and yet these people still smile and they joke. And I just think, you know, we have nothing. I, I can't complain. If I die tomorrow, I can't complain about my 55 years I had here as a North American. Yeah. Yeah. I could walk to the fridge and get a beer when I, you know, it's like, why, what should I, I can't complain about a damn thing. Right. I mean, children die at age two. It's like, what? Mm-hmm. Compare, it's all about who you compare yourself to, right? Like, who are you going to compare yourself to? Yeah, I don't, I don't have a mansion. I don't, you know, but I'm also not some kid dying over in Africa because the water's tainted. Like,
2: I know. <sighs> David, I often say I walk into Metro or into no frills and I see 10 different types of apples lined up one next to the other. Mm-hmm. And you see the beautifully colored peppers, yeah. you know, the red peppers, the green peppers. Yeah. And, then, and then that leads into the cucumbers and the radishes. And I think to myself, my God, how many times in history has someone been able to go into a store, buy what they want, yeah. you know, take it home and eat it and just yeah. go back and buy more. And it's all there yeah. for them.
3: I mean, on on such a mass level, like more or less everyone can do that in Toronto unless you're really down and out. Pretty much. So this is a new thing in the last hundred years, maybe. I think right? so. I mean, it's almost like a blip, really. Yeah. I mean, people in the 18, 1800s were starving. Yeah. I mean, the life was so tough. This actually ties into the nostalgia painting thing because yeah. Yeah. those scenes are kind of romanticized, but th- that was tough. I know. I don't. I love the past, but I don't look at it as something that was. Oh, it was so everything was so wonderful. I know. People went to little barn dances and the horses. And <laughs> yeah, you know, like, yeah, everyone yeah. was happy playing little violins. What and, a you know. beautiful pillbox hat she's wearing,
2: <laughs> right? I know. I know. Yeah, they had rough lives. <laughs> oh, yeah. And yeah. they were coming off wars, and they were coming off recessions yeah. and depressions. Right. Know. Yeah, it's very true.
3: I sometimes think we don't really get it. But I, sorry, I'm dragging the format down here. You want to no, I just go want, rapid fire? <laughs> no, I just want you to
2: say what's on your mind. What? What? Uh, how's the world doing? How are we doing in the world?
3: Well, I, you know, it's I, it's easy to focus on the negative. The world's actually not as if you look at violence in the world, it's actually better now than it's been at any point That's true. in human history. Mm-hmm. people don't realize this. I mean. You know, 30 million Russians died in the Second World War. Yeah. Like, think of the scale of that. Huge. We don't have anything in our world today that's on that level. Look at the first half of the 20th century. World War I, basically a complete fiasco and a nightmare. Uh, World War II, certainly don't need to explain to anyone who's Jewish what the implications of that. Yeah. I mean, holy God. Was there any worse event in history than that? Yeah. So, you know, we're so polarized. What happens is a political leader gets in and the other side just demonizes him to the point where I see this on Facebook, right? People just screaming and shrieking about this person's going to do that. This person, it's like, none of it's true. And then that person's gone. And then the next one, it's like, oh, here he comes, you know? Yeah. And and they compare these guys to, they compare people to Hitler all the time. It's awful. I just think that, that actually does a disservice to what, you know, happened under Hitler. Like you're trivial, you're trivializing it. It really pisses me off because I, I don't find people really know history well enough.
2: By the way, you're a very good pugilist. Oh, on, thanks. On social when media, I was,
3: when I was a bull, when I was fighting you, yes,
2: <laughs> yes, that's what I mean. <laughs> okay, no. Sometimes I'll see you. I guess you just lose your patience with some people on Facebook. I do, you know, and you 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 go at them, and you do a really good job.
3: I know, but it's such a futile.
2: It is futile.
3: It may, it makes me crazy too. I know, but I can't resist. But I go insane when I do it too. So I, I, I try really hard to not. I just bite my tongue, and I also don't want it to interfere with any of the work I'm trying to do on social media about art. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I don't want. Oh, I hate that guy. I don't like his politics. I'm not going to buy his gonna, art. He's a jerk. I'm you know unfriending yeah. him. I'm not following. I, so are you? It's a bit uh, crass.
2: Are but, you doing enough for the world to make it a better place? than it was
3: maybe in my own small way i don't uh, i don't have aspirations of setting the world on fire like i would have had when i was 20 I, i'm a realist now um i don't know if i leave my art behind people are still liking it in a century from now that to me is good enough so no i don't i'm just one guy you know yeah
2: <laughs> right right so and your art so that really stands for you as a piece, what you which you want uh, as an influencer, like you want this to help make the world a better place. I would your say art. so, yeah. That, that's fascinating. Yeah. What do people say to you about your art? What, what kind of comments do you get on it?
3: Well, the thing I get, you know, well, evocative and, and people, you know, you haven't had the experience of exhibiting yet, right? Like no. setting up a booth and it's interesting because you need a thin or tough skin yeah, because people will just fly by. I mean, literally they'll glance and not even – They'll barely give you the time of day. And mm-hmm. I've learned to stop trying to appeal to everybody. So the ones who do like it, if they get it, then they're totally drawn in. And, oh, it's evocative and I love that and love. It. But, you know, but the other problem is that praise is cheap. So you'll get a lot of praise. As an exhibiting artist, you'll get lots of people who will stop by and tell you how wonderful it all is. Yeah. And then they'll move on. And, you know, you can't dine out on that, right? Right. No, you can't. <laughs> if you sell one piece at an exhibition, you've done okay, you know? Yeah. So it's a tough, it's a tough racket. You need a thick skin, uh, but yeah, I, I get the old timers connect with me a lot, right? Obviously, I'm assuming they would. The people who remember ice being delivered on a on a wagon with a horse, but they're not art buyers. That's the sort of thing I grapple with because they they're older. They're probably getting rid of stuff. They're not acquiring more things.
2: Yeah, those were the people who were brought up on those velvet art pieces at yeah. Kmart. Believe that
3: they love it. They just they don't have the space for it. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So people divest at that point. They're divesting.
2: What, what what's your advice to uh, young artists?
3: Brand yourself in a way where you're really, really identifiable as you. So that someone, oh, that's a I recognize that. That's an that's an Avram painting. That's a Rayom. I, I, that's a Rayom. I'd know it anywhere. It you have to be distinctive because There are so many talented artists out there, literally tens of thousands of them. Mm -hmm. And I actually don't consider myself to be the best renderer of the people I exhibit with. Like I walk those shows and I go, Oh my God, that guy's. Yeah. But I try to create an advantage in that my subject matter and my style is unique to the point where it stands off of. So I go, I can go into things like the McMichael and I've had people come up to me and say, of all the work in here, your stuff stands out because. These people are fantastic artists, but they all, a lot of them tend to gravitate towards the same subjects. It's yeah. rock, water, tree, <laughs> Correct. giant flower. Uh, yeah. The other one I did, I actually did a seminar on selling your art, which is a bit of I a saw. farce because I'm not a millionaire and I'm really not at <laughs> I saw, I saw I'm that. i success at it. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> one of the points I made was I said the tiger face, like people paint the tiger face all the time. Yeah. And, I, and some of them painted so well, it's like a photo. And I just asked myself, what's the point of that? Yeah, I do and I, too. And, and to make my point, I searched online Tiger Face. I did a montage of like 40 Tiger Faces. They're all beautifully executed, but it's the exact same painting. And yeah. I can't tell one from another. Yeah, right, exactly. So to me, it's like, no, you can't do, don't be the Tiger Face thing. Like find something that's so you that everyone, because you need to stand out. You're competing against maybe 60, 70 other artists. And you need to be distinctive. David, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you. This was a real treat. I it was it, was it? Did yeah, you enjoy it? Absolutely. Yeah. I was a little nervous coming in. I know how much you how tough you are and how you bitch <laughs> slap people and ruin I'm their computer. That's it. what they say. <laughs> Hat radio, that guy's a bastard. <laughs> oh, I have to have one more thing before we please, go. What does Hat please.
2: Radio mean? Right. So um it, it's a real struggle to name whatever it is that you're doing. When I started via Hufda, which is a non profit, um, yeah, I really, for months and months and months, uh, I really uh, f- struggled w- with what to call it. And eventually, my friend Ellie helped me. Um, and I didn't want to go through the same thing with my podcast. And I knew it had to be catchy. So I was sitting here at my table where we are now. And I happened to have a hat on the table. And I go, hmm, how about hat radio? <laughs>
3: that's it huh? and it stuck with really? me it's interesting that's
2: all and the interesting thing it's a bit like art because people will say yeah you know i totally get that like top of the morning sure, tea sort you tip of thing. your hat or you like hold your hat out to somebody that's exactly or... right but i had no intention that way at it's all really i just want i had to na- it's like I, it's like the lawyer calls oh well Avram, you have to sign this but you have to give your radio show a, a name and i said okay fine how about hat radio and i was good to go
3: Amazing. Yeah. It's like a bit, bit like Mrs. Doubtfire, right? Mrs. Doubtfire to then. <laughs> yeah.
2: Marty does that all the
3: time. You know, I love those hybrid names. Like if we had a show together, if it was like Avdav, you know, when people take the guys' parts of the guys' yeah, yeah, two names, yeah.
2: or Rayom Swag. <laughs> <laughs> that just rolls off the tongue i know one. people that's catchy <laughs> yeah real I'm swag i'm listening to that tonight but david i i really enjoyed this the, the the essence of this show really is to inspire people and i find you highly inspiring i really oh, do thank you very much i, I, I lo- appreciate that i, I very much so, like I, I love your storytelling i love your devotion to your family and friends and to life yeah i mean at some point in this interview you said i, I love canada Yes. Uh, it's a definitive Absolutely. statement, right? Yeah. And yeah. what a lovely thing to say is I just love this country. Yeah. And by that, you mean the aesthetics of it. I yeah. imagine you mean the people, right? Yeah. So good for
3: you. Well, thank you very much. It's been a treat. Uh, great to catch up again, too. Yeah. It's been lovely, we, uh, hasn't we, it? We worked a lot together. Yeah, <laughs> years we did. Ago. We did. And that's <laughs> an interesting bizarre thing. bizarre circumstance.
2: <laughs> well, it's a really interesting thing about TV and other, other art forms as well is that you work intensely with people. Yes. And then you don't see them. Yeah. Right? Very true. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's great to be back. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. So I want to also thank our listeners uh, for staying with us. I tell people, hey, listen, man, you don't have to listen to this in one shot. Ray Ohm can be boring here and there, right?
4: (laughs) That's what (laughs) I I tell people, Dave.
2: Yeah, he can be boring, right? I get tuned out by my family all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So listen to it in parts. But the most important thing is take out of it what you can. And hopefully you're inspired uh, by the show and by what we're trying to accomplish here because – Um, There's lots of crap out there, and and this is not what I want to present to the public. I want to present the real positive stuff. So uh, I hope you enjoyed the show. Stay with us. You've been listening to Hat Radio. It is the show that schmoozes. God bless.
1: Avram Rosenzweig began public speaking when he was five years old. Over the last five decades, Avram has mastered the art of public speaking, Today, Avram is a professional speechwriter and speech coach. He offers a wide selection of services that can assist you in preparing for public speaking events, speeches for family or professional occasions, a keynote, a memorial, or a simple toast. Avram can also coach you through articulation and presentation challenges. For all your speechwriting needs, send Avram an email at info at hatradio.ca, that's info at hatradio.ca. You've been listening to Hat Radio with Avram Rosenzweig. Sponsored by Goodness and Positivity. Hat Radio, the show that schmoozes.
0: Step inside my living room, share a little talk. By roads walked and lessons learned. Keeping the flame of faith burning. I want to know where you've been. What you found out, spread some light in the darkness, spread it all about in the height, in the height, put it all in the height.